Welcome to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. When people are injured due to negligence or while on the job, they need all the help they can get. Doctors Armin Feldman and Mike Bummer help ensure they get it. Join them as they discuss the newest medical subspecialty of medical legal consulting. Learn how attorneys can gain a competitive advantage in PI, workers' comp, and medical malpractice cases. Armin and Mike can help you better understand the medical issues in your cases, leading to larger settlement amounts and the best possible medical care for clients. They can help save you time and increase case value, all without breaking the bank. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. This is Dr. Armin Feldman, and I want to welcome our viewers on our new YouTube channel. So for those of you that want to actually watch the podcast instead of just listening to it, you can now do that, as Mike pointed out on our last episode. And welcome to all of our listeners who listen on our podcast wherever you want to listen to podcasts. So uh, I am here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and partner in Physicians Legal Consultants, Dr. Mike Bummer. Hi, Armin, and hello to all of our listeners out there in the interwebs. It's been a lot of fun. We're, we're very excited to, again, have this now our second video podcast, and you can find us just by searching on, uh, on YouTube. The easiest way is type in Physicians Helping Attorneys, and uh, which also I should just mention at the beginning that if anyone, as you're listening, if you have any questions, you have a case you want to discuss or, or anything at all, you can always email us, which is easiest, at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. And we'd, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to see what you think of the show. And uh, we, I think we have a, a very nice show today. But before we get into that, Armin, how, how have you been? Uh, great, actually. I've been, uh, as you know, Mike, I've been batching it this week. So uh, as a tra- uh, Christmas tradition, uh, my wife, Holly, and her sisters get together every year and do their famous uh, Christmas cookies, particularly their Santa cookies that they actually started doing with their mom uh, when they were kids, and they've carried on this tradition. So last year, Holly's sister, Amy, came from Minneapolis to our house for the uh, factory production of uh Christmas cookies. And this year, her sister Jonah lives in Boulder, and Holly flew out to Minneapolis. And uh, from what I understand, they're ready to open their own retail store. (laughs) Of course. How nice. (laughs) Awesome. How about you? Well, uh, busy with the holidays. As you know, I have a young daughter, and it's been a busy time of year. Her birthday is this month, too, which always adds extra uh, excitement for her and the family. But Something that I thought about that I wanted to tell you, and I, I, ha- I haven't mentioned this to you yet, but Kristen and I, over the last three or four weeks, have found a new comedian. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners, if they have Netflix, have, have found this guy as well. If you haven't, you've you got to check him out. His name is Nate Bargatze. Mm-hmm. It's a really funny spelling of the last name. Don't even ask me to try. But he hits on a lot of stuff that to me, it's almost, I almost feel sacrilegious saying this, but he's almost like a, a Seinfeld-esque tone mm. about him, the way he points out daily life and the world we live in and how silly it can be at times and the 
uh, the funny situations he finds himself in. And he's just hilarious. Very right. deadpan. He, uh, he he delivers his stories really well. So I, I you, you and Holly should check him out. Great. Well, it's always great to laugh, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So we have a good show today. Uh, we're going to go back to the basics. And we are going to just do a couple cases like we've always done. And again, if, uh, if you have a case you'd like to discuss, send us an email at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. But our, our first case is going to be a typical car crash, and then I'm going to discuss a standard of care merit analysis. So, Armin, why don't, why don't you start off with the car crash case? Great. Okay. So, uh, by the way, I don't think this is uh, – it is um, typical, but uh, it's not mundane or routine, right? And one of the reasons for that is this involved uh, a 17-year-old uh, girl – who, when I got the case, she was a 19-year-old young woman, but uh, she was riding in a van with uh, other kids her age. And she was in the middle row, in the middle seat. I think there were nine seats. And of all things, they were rear-ended by a fully loaded cement truck uh, going at a, a fairly high clip, a fairly high speed. And she uh, got several injuries. And uh, by the way, several of the uh, young uh, women in the van were injured. So uh, they, uh, she was transported to the closest hospital emergency room, which happened to be in Parker, Colorado. And she was seen in the emergency room. They did some x-rays. They, uh, she complained immediately after the accident of neck pain. Uh, she also compl- complained of headaches, pretty severe headache. Uh, and both of those problems became chronic problems. And when I got involved in the case, her main symptoms were neck pain, uh, headaches every, that were occurring every day. Uh, by the way, the neck pain on an average day was seven over 10. Mm. And she was also complaining of these headaches. Uh, on a good day, the, the pain was maybe three or four out of 10. Uh, but on a bad day, which could happen a couple times a week, the pain was a seven uh, over 10. So she was having some pretty significant problems. And the other problem she was having is she was having a lot of emotional distress because she was she had these terrible chronic problems. She was only 19 years old. And uh, she told me, I don't think I can quote her, but she told me, I can't do the things that a normal 19-year-old can and do. And how, how long after the, the, the crash did you, were you asked to be involved with this comprehensive medical summary report? Yeah, it was two years after the crash. Okay. Yeah. Do you find that that's typical from your attorneys timing-wise? Well, that's a little long, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so the attorney was still attempting to settle the case, um, but uh, I think he was also uh, bumping up against a uh, deadline where uh, they would have to file and go to go to trial. So uh, I think that this was kind of a last ditch effort to try to get the case negotiated and settled. Okay. So. Because of this severe neck pain, she, um, not too uh, lo- uh, b- long before I saw her, she had a, a cervical MRI, 
And that MRI showed that she had disc protrusions at C4-5, uh, C5-6, and C6-7. Okay. And her complaint was for her neck was that she was having midline, pretty severe midline neck pain that was radiating into her shoulders and into her uh, her uh, scapula on both both sides, uh, shoulder in her shoulder blades on both sides, and this was really interfering with her uh, ability for. Of doing the things of uh, just completing the activities of daily living. What diagnosis did she leave the ER with that the first initial day? They didn't diagnose anything anatomically. They just said she had neck pain. Okay. Okay. So, and so far she had had some uh, conservative treatment. You know, she had had some physical therapy. Uh, she uh, had... Uh, had some medication. She had had some pain medication, uh, but she, uh, she s- certainly wasn't getting better. So uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, by the way, is that the diagnosis from the radiologist were disc protrusions. And I think it's important that our listeners and viewers know that a disc protrusion, by definition, is actually a herniated disc. Now, there's a, there is a seminal paper. Actually, the first paper came out in 2001, but they did a revision of that paper in uh, 2014. And this is a paper that was in the Journal of the American Association of Neuroradiologists, right? And they uh, were talking about a number of things, but they wanted to really emphasize the nomenclature of the pathology of the uh, traumatic pathology in the neck. So uh, now, so the so essentially, what you had was uh, disc herniations without uh, loss of annular material from the disc. So there was no material from the disc that was extruded, but she definitely had these disc herniations, uh, and with the symptoms protrusions. Yeah. Yes, the disc protrusions. Yep, and. The pain was really quite severe. So um, something else that I think is important to mention is that there are literally hundreds of papers about uh, biochemically mediated pain in the neck uh, due to trauma. And one of the mechanisms of that is a disc herniation. Now, uh, it could be if there's the release of annular material from the disc material, uh, sometimes that's even worse. But you can get this biochemically mediated pain just with the herniation. And uh, you can go to the literature on this and it, it will explain the biochemistry of it really quite well. You know, I've had to explain this to uh, some of my attorneys before, and it's when you really simplify the analogy, it's nothing more than the way our body bruises that we think of a bruise in, you know, if we get hit with a ball in our thigh or if we we walk into the side of a a pointy table, there's a there's a response that our body has to to injury and it includes inflammation, these chemicals, and it's a chemical chemically mediated response, like you said. And uh, also the words I used is it, it sensitizes that area. That's right. And what, but it's such a 
it's such a sensitive area in the nerve where the nerve endings are in the cervical spine that it's not surprising one bit that this causes significant ongoing pain. Right. Uh, well said, by the way. Yeah, very well said. Uh, so but one other thing I'd say about that, Mike, is that there was no mechanical impingement on the nerve roots. Uh, and of course, this is something that opposing doctors and opposing sure. counsel will jump on because they'll make the argument, well, there's no impingement of the nerve root. So how could you possibly have this pain, right? Uh, I don't know how many times I've seen this, uh, ignoring this uh, biochemical uh, pain generator that is so common in these kinds of cases. And one of the things that we, how we can help our attorneys and ultimately the injured person is by uh, explaining this in our reports and backing up our medical opinions in this regard with uh, just an abundance of evidence from the medical literature. That's right. Yeah. So the other thing that they found in her neck is that she had the loss of what is medically called a normal lordosis of the neck. And really what that means in plain English is the neck has a curvature to it, right? It's, it's not a perfect C, but it's a little bulges out a little bit more on the top side rather than the bottom side. But the bones uh, in the uh, spine have this normal curvature. And one of the things that can happen uh, in an auto crash is the traumatic effect of that crash, whether it's due to, uh, typically maybe due to uh, whiplash, is that there's the loss of this normal curvature. And so what that means is that the bones in the neck straighten out. Occasionally they can even reverse, right? But, mm -hmm. but more commonly, those bones are going to straighten out. And when those bone, uh, the vertebrae straighten out, that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on really the whole system, the joints, the ligaments, the tendons, the facet joints that uh, hold one segment up against the, the next. And this, uh, th this loss of the normal lordosis of the neck can become a chronic problem. And one of the interesting things is if you go to the literature and look at this, uh, it's clearly spelled out. I mean, you can get pain up and down all of the segments of the cervical spine, but uh, one of the things that is common to this, and we would might use the word pathognomonic, right, is absolutely mm -hmm. characteristic of this condition, is if there has been a straightening out at C4-5. Was this measured in this young girl? You know, it wasn't. You know, in fact, one of the recommendations, good question, by the way. And one of the recommendations I made to the attorney in my recommendation section is get another MRI, uh, have it done and have it read by somebody that really understands this, uh, how these traumatic uh, neck injuries actually uh, occur and, and how they how they look and get measurements because you can go ahead. What? It, well, in addition to your really well spelled out opinion, I'm sure your attorney would love some obj uh, objective testing that could support 
Absolutely. exactly what you're explaining. So f- to recommend that and get that done actually it, it is, is genius. And also, uh, I'm sure your attorney was pretty happy to hear about that suggestion. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that's exactly what I told them, Mike. We're absolutely on the same page there because you can go to the literature and find out um, how many uh, millimeters uh, it has to be changed for that to be uh, a pathologic change. So, and then the other thing, I don't want to take too, I don't want to take too much time, but the other thing is she was also diagnosed with a myofascial pain syndrome. And the reason I want to bring this up is this is a soft tissue injury. Uh, and so sometimes these soft tissue injuries get poo-pooed or uh, by, uh, again, by opposing doctors, opposing counsel. And uh, the, the, these soft tissue injuries are very well spelled out in the medical literature. And this is damage to the muscles, the tendons, uh, and the ligaments, not only that are just right alongside the uh, the bony structures in the neck, but uh, also could be throughout the neck and actually down into the back. And one of the things that uh, you can see on physical exam uh, quite often are these nodules. And if you press on these nodules, you can reproduce that pain. Uh, And so, in fact, that was mentioned uh, in some of the medical reports. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they're still called this, but they used to be called Kieselbox nodes. And uh, she she had that. So she had th- uh, three ways uh, that needed that were mechanisms by which she had this very severe pain. And so I, I went on and uh, described all this, described uh, what the possible treatments could be for this, and uh, gave it to the attorney so he could uh, better uh, argue, uh, argue, especially with objective evidence, like you pointed out, and uh, get the treatment. Uh, obviously, this was a damage in the case, but also get the appropriate treatment that she needed into the settlement. How many pages was this report? Uh, this report, I think it turned out to be something like eight pages. Okay. And do you happen to recall roughly, or maybe just even a report like this, how many hours it took you? Yeah, um, I think this was like six or seven hours. Okay. Yeah. That's great. That's typical. I think yeah. that's that's standard for me as well. Yeah. So I think that's enough on that. But I, I think that those issues are so critical that uh, that's what I really wanted to have our viewers and listeners uh, learn something about. What's Excellent. your case? Yeah. So changing uh, sides of the coin a bit. My case that I wanted to discuss is a standard of care kind of merit evaluation for uh, causation and for what the standard of care treatment was for someone in a, negli- a medical negligence case. Right. The case involved a elderly gentleman in his 60s who was not in, in his best health, meaning he actually had end-stage renal disease and was kidney on disease. kidney disease on dialysis, and COPD, some high blood pressure, and peripheral vascular disease, which is another way of saying that his arteries that fed mainly his legs and peripheral uh, uh, hands and and feet were not in the best of shape, and they they knew that there was narrowing. 
Unfortunately, this gentleman suffered a uh, decreased blood flow to his feet and required vascular surgery to try to open up the arteries that take blood to his extremities. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very serious surgery and not all that uncommon. Mm -hmm. And he underwent the surgery. It actually went well. And he was in recovery and started in the hospital, to... Mike? Yes, this was all done. Uh, he, he was inpatient. Mm -hmm. uh, the plan was for him to be admitted for a few days to recover from this. Yeah. And he was noticed in the post-operative care unit that his blood pressures were not uh, stabilizing well. And he may have had just kind of generalized uh, complications of anesthesia or maybe response to the, the anesthetics used. And he just wasn't doing really well and they had to give him and this is key later in the story but they had to give him vasopressors which is medication that helps keep your blood pressure up so that you can survive because without good blood pressure right. we 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 get very sick very quickly right so just to make just to clear that make that crystal clear the blood pressure problem wasn't that it was going up. It was the fact that it was going down dangerously, the possible life-threatening. Exactly. His heart may have not been handling things well. Again, he's, he's, he's not very, uh, very healthy. And so they were helping keep, him, uh, keep his blood pressure up. Okay. So they're, they're following him along. He's admitted, and they start to note that he has some uh, uh, numbness in his back, and he, he's kind of getting sicker and not uh, uh, what's, what's called mentally, he's having some status changes. We call them mental status changes, but he's kind of acting confused. He's very groggy, uh, not really interacting like himself, some personality changes. And he gets very sick very quickly. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the course of about 12 to 24 hours in the ICU, he he has to be intubated to protect his airway. Wow! They have to put him on a ventilator. They have to give him additional medication, and he, the family ultimately, with his complicated medical picture, decided to uh, to forego uh, heroic measures, and right. they removed life support. And the family is very frustrated that this gentleman went in for artery treatments to his lower extremities and only days later had died from a mysterious cause of death. Right. And on the uh, autopsy report uh, that they did, they, they named cause of death as sepsis and uh, mesenteric ischemia. My, my, yeah, yeah. My attorney wasn't really familiar right. with mesenteric ischemia, which is, I think, also why the, he sent us this case. Mm -hmm. So... When you dig into this, mesenteric ischemia is a, it's almost like having a stroke in your blood vessels that feed your small intestines. Okay. And a stroke, it's funny actually, Armin, I, I've explained this to a lot, of, a lot of people that a stroke is only what we typically call a blood clot that harms blood flow in our brain. Right. Whereas a stroke of the heart is called a heart attack. Right. A stroke of the leg is called peripheral vascular occlusion. Right. You know, so they're all kind of strokes, which really all comes down to blood flow. Right. Without blood flow, which is the key to all 
healthful tissues and, and survival, you, you get these, these problems that arise. So this specifically, and it's strange, he didn't understand why. He looked up what mesenteric was. My attorney looked that up. But he wasn't sure why there was a clot or blood flow issues to his small bowels, given he had no, no surgery there, no issues whatsoever. Right. So when you dig into this, though, and this only took a few hours, uh, actually less than, less than three hours of my time, you start to understand the bigger picture. And there's something here with this kind of fancy term called mesenteric ischemia that there's a few different types. There's one where the blood flow to those small bowels gets clotted, almost like a pulmonary embolism. If our attorneys or our doctors listening know, it's almost like a pulmonary embolism, but to the vessels that serve the bowels. The second type is a uh, is more like a heart attack, and that's a atherosclerosis or a building up of plaque in those yeah. vessels, and you can get it that way. And the third is called non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia, and all of these reduce or severely uh, compromise the bowels. And if our bowels die from lack of blood. Usually, unfortunately, the person also uh, does not survive because that is such a critical organ and our bowels are so sensitive and those blood vessels are so small. So I was able to tell the attorney and explain that this was, in fact, uh, pretty clear cut, a case of non-occlusive mesenteric ischemia. And that I knew because it's most commonly in patients who have pre-existing medical problems, mm. very serious medical problems like end-stage renal disease or right. kidney disease, COPD, people who are over 65 years old. Yeah. And he checked all those boxes. Right? He checked them all and he had had recent surgery. Right. And the kicker, mm. the like the the final, you know, uh, key to this is that it's also significantly increased in patients who receive vasopressors. Okay. Because those vasopressors to keep the blood pressure up, which he needed to survive, they also shrink the blood vessels in certain parts of our body. And that those vasopressors, while saving his heart and his brain, they compromise the blood flow to his bowels. Yeah, you're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. You really are. And the moral of this story, and we would all we all would want to avoid it, is, you know, major surgery is nothing to be taken light to be taken right. lightly. And when it can be avoided, when there's alternatives, when we can preventatively be healthier, it's always preferable. Yeah. And uh, so I was able to conclusively give my attorney the opinion that this was a highly defendable case. There, there was no breach in standard of care. All of the uh, boxes were checked by the medical team. And certainly there was no causation of any actions that caused this, uh, this poor gentleman's demise um, after surgery. Yeah, so you saved the attorney and the family a lot of uh, grief and uh, stress. Yeah, exactly. And this, you know, in our last episode, we were sharing successes from from attorneys that had emailed us or given us pearls. And this goes along the lines of, you know, he didn't say this exactly, but yeah, the thanks, Doc, you know, you saved me tens of thousands of dollars in two or three months. Uh, if, if he hadn't been able to get some of that insight, um, this was a very affordable, very quick uh, answer 
that he was able to then go back to the family and explain it. He was ex- he was kind of excited in a in a very understandable somber way that he was going to be able to offer this family some uh, peace of mind. Yeah, that's just great. That's just great. You know, it reminds me of something I written in reports uh, quite a few times. And you said you got to be cautious about any major surgery. Sometimes in the reports uh, that I'm commenting on, uh, some opposing doctor has said, well, this was only minor surgery. Hmm. And uh, I always write back, it's only minor for the surgeon. That's right. <laughs> right? It's, it's not necessarily minor yeah. for the person that you're cutting on. Uh, and so uh, all of those decisions need to be made carefully. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, I, I think we should wrap up. What do you think? Yeah, I don't have anything else. Uh, uh, oh, I did want to mention that if you're a physician listener and you uh, would like some information about some training to actually learn how to do medical legal consulting, send us an email at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. And certainly, if, if you're an attorney listener and have a case or a question, use the same email address. And if you are watching this on YouTube, please go ahead and click the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And also, click that bell. There's a notification bell that will alert you with a uh, notification whenever a new episode is published. And of course, feel free to hop over to our podcast where the audio version, if you're jogging or if you're on your way to work, and you can find us on uh, Google Play Store, iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, and please uh, click that follow button uh, so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening and thanks for watching. And we really look forward to having you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Physicians Helping Attorneys Helping People. For more information about the show and to listen to all the podcast episodes, go to physicianshelpingattorneys.com. You can also email Armin and Mike at comments at physicianshelpingattorneys.com. Music